You're listening to Global Policy Next Generation podcast. I'm Amna Kaleem and I'm talking to Rafaela Lima, who is a doctoral researcher in the Department of Geography at the University of Sheffield. Rafaela's research is on affordable housing and today we're going to talk to her about her recent paper on affordable housing in Portugal. So Rafaela, welcome to The Next Generation. Thank you, Amna. Thank you for having me. You have recently done some work on the provision of affordable housing in Portugal, but before we talk on that, do you want to tell us what is affordable housing and how is it different from social housing? Sure. So that's a really good question because I think both of those terms often get conflated or are often not very well defined. I would say social housing is sort of a narrower concept that would refer to housing that is in some way provisioned or guaranteed by the state, which generally allows more people to access housing in a secure way. Um, But obviously that can take many different forms, and it does in many different countries. Affordable housing, if you want, can sort of mean anything under the sun. So in the UK, famously, uh, there's recently been some provisions at the council level so that any new development has to include a certain percentage of quote-unquote affordable housing, which sounds great, but when you actually read the fine print, affordable housing can mean up to 80% of the market rate. So obviously that is not genuinely affordable to very many people. I still think it's an important concept, uh, and I would, I mean, I'm hesitant to define exactly what it is because I think it means means different things to different people. Um, But to me, affordable housing is housing that is actually affordable to people. So that might need to be more based on people's income um, and and also thinking about uh, why housing is unaffordable to begin with. So not taking things like a rise in house prices just for granted, as we're often told, oh, like property values are going up, so there's nothing that you can do about that. And that's just how it is. And so I think that needs to be questioned. Can you give us a brief overview of uh, the state of affordable housing in Portugal? Um, Yeah, sure. So you could say affordable housing in Portugal is near non-existent. I think for foreign investors coming from other countries, housing in Portugal is seen as very affordable compared with elsewhere in Europe. Um, But I think for residents in Portugal, it's increasingly seen as not affordable. This Portuguese state has historically built very little social housing. Uh, Any resources that they've put into housing has generally been into pushing homeownership and pushing the expansion of homeownership. So basically helping people to get mortgages and things like that. And that, that's meant that the rental market has reduced dramatically. So between 1970 and 2011, um, households re- who were renting their primary residence dropped from 46% to 20%. There was some rent control, control regulation. So under the dictatorship, which ended in 1974, there was a decision to actually freeze rents. And this could be passed on. So if you were in a flat your whole life, you could pass it on to your child and the rent would stay the same, which meant that you had people living in like a flat in the center of Lisbon paying, I don't know how much, but like, you know, maybe 60 euros a month or something like that. And as I said, the rental market has, has shrunk a lot. So I don't know whether that actually applied to like a huge amount of people in general, but it did mean that that group of people was able to stay in their flat. But yeah, so even that rent control has just recently been dismantled. So there's been a new law to liberalize rents to kind of 
put them in line with the quote-unquote market rate. So this has actually meant an increase in the number of evictions recently of people who are living in those kinds of rent-controlled flats. And in general, so property prices have been rising really rapidly in recent years. So between 2016 and 2017, property prices in Portugal rose about almost 5%. In urban centers, they rose from about 5 to 10% from 2015 to 2016, and it's really showing no sign of slowing down. And you have to remember that this is in a context where this is one of the poorest countries in Europe. There's a high unemployment rate. Wages have been pretty much stagnant. There were a lot of EU-imposed sort of austerity measures. So that's really diminished people's ability also to kind of access housing. And those that do manage to buy property, there's also been an increasing number of people who have found themselves unable to pay off their mortgages. And finally, there's, there is quite a significant homeless population, but there's no, there's no official way to count the number of homeless people. So estimates range anywhere from 4,000 to 50,000. But in any case, it's clearly a, an issue. Um, so that's just as brief as I could make it <laughs> overview of the affordability situation. Since there isn't uh, a standardized way of uh, keeping track of the number of homeless people. Do you think you could go on and say that this is a housing crisis? Um, yeah, definitely. I think you could. I think like in many countries, you would probably say that there is a housing crisis happening and Portugal is no different. You mentioned that since the end of the dictatorship and the end of rent control, people have faced eviction. Have you noticed any trends in your research that highlight some social problems which are being caused because of this? Yes, definitely. I Yeah, I should say that I'm not at all saying that the dictatorship was good or anything, but just that one of the, you know, random things they happened to do was uh, freeze rents, which has, has had these ramifications today. In terms of social ramifications, around 57% of young people are living with their parents. And there's also massive segregation, especially in urban areas. I mean, basically because there's so little social housing, the vast majority of poor families are obliged to find housing in the most precarious parts of the private rental sector and the owner occupancy sector. So um, like anything, the housing crisis impacts low-income groups and more vulnerable groups generally much more. And so, for example, you also have Roma communities or communities of um, like migrants from former Portuguese colonies, which many of which might be Portuguese citizens, um, but who have been kind of relegated to the periphery of the city and often live in uh, sort of makeshift shacks. I mean, you essentially have informal settlements in the periphery of cities in Portugal, like Lisbon. And those those areas are extremely precarious to live in because these communities often face kind of random eviction or demolition because their housing is not really seen as legitimate, right? Um, and it often does it often does lack access to kind of basic services or is not really well located to access education, healthcare, and things like that. Um, so yeah, there's many many different knock-on effects. So if you were to narrow down, and I know it's not easy to do, but if you were to narrow down certain causes or say the predominant factors exacerbating the housing crisis in Portugal, what would those be? Yeah, it's it's a difficult question. You can kind of look at it from the perspective of the role of the state and say that, you know, the state has kind of put all of its eggs in the home ownership basket, so to speak, and not kind of built up much infrastructure for people who don't fall into that category. 
Other issues that are happening is that there's increased, massive increase in foreign investment. Um, so the Portuguese economy from the outside is seen as kind of like recovering from crisis, which is good, but then it's still relatively cheap, as I said, compared to other European countries. And I think that can inflate the value of, uh, of property. Um, and there's also been a massive increase in tourism in Portugal. Um, and this has meant the, like a massive proliferation of short-term rentals. So things like Airbnb and other companies the issue with that is that there's essentially no um, regulation on it. So some countries have tried to kind of limit the kinds of properties that can be rented out and how long, but like Portugal doesn't really have any regulation like that. And then finally, I would also just point to the presence of, people have pointed to the presence of speculation and financialization in the house housing sector, which definitely inflates, could be said to inflate house prices. Um, it is often suggested that affordability is linked to demand and supply. So The problem in Portugal uh, in terms of housing, is it simply due to low supply of houses? Yeah, uh, so that's a really, um, really important issue. I think the common approach to housing is, you know, well, if you increase supply, then the price will naturally kind of go down, right? Um, But actually, there's a number of studies that show that, especially in recent decades, housing supply has increased along with housing prices. So that kind of logic is really not necessarily, does not really hold for housing. There's a few academics who talk about the fact that in Portugal, uh, house building actually outpaced the increase in the number of households, like since the 1980s. So that in 2011, for example, the number, the total number of houses was actually 45% higher uh, than the number of families. And I think the UN estimates that around 10 to 12% of units are vacant. And then three, like 3.4% of those are dilapidated or uninhabitable, um, which I think that is a really big issue, especially in um, cities like Lisbon and Porto, that there is a lot of housing that's sort of been degraded over time. And the rental law is cited as one of the reasons for that, because they say that uh, landlords just haven't had enough money, basically, to do the needed repairs um, on these houses. But yeah, so I mean, you can see from that, that even if some of them are not right now uninhabited, or not right now habitable, um, it's really not an issue of supply. There isn't necessarily a shortage of housing. House building has been increasing for a while, and yet you still have a lot of people who don't have secure homes. So lack of housing is not really an issue. Do you think um, the financialization of the housing market is to blame for the problems that you've identified? I think it can be, it definitely plays a role. So I should say that financialization kind of becoming one of these terms like neoliberalism, where it's becoming very trendy in certain academic circles. It's not always fully defined, although I think like neoliberalism, it still can be a very useful term. And I should say that it's very popular within sort of political economy geography circles, whereas I think mainstream financial economists would never talk about financialization, um, which is quite interesting. So financialization of housing can be defined in many different ways. But I would maybe say it's sort of the increasing prevalence of financial institutions and practices in the housing sector, or essentially housing used as a means to further financial wealth. So the prime example of that is mortgage securitization. So that's where mortgage debt is divided up and repackaged 
and sold off. And as we know, that's that played a big role in instigating the 2008 financial crisis in the U.S. So not everyone looks at uh, just at mortgages. So like my supervisor, Desiree Fields, looks at the financialization of rental housing, which is also a really interesting emerging um, body of work. So some people would say, would look at um, the mortgage debt to GDP ratio, sort of an indicator of housing financialization. And if you take that definition, which again is only one approach that you can take, Portugal has one of the highest rates of that ratios in Europe. And also an increasing number of studies look at sort of the correlation between increased financialization of housing and um, rising house prices or sort of increased unaffordability. So we have identified the problems. (laughs) Now, as you are an expert in making on all things housing, can you recommend some measures to solve these issues or address them to some extent? (laughs) Sure. So... I should say I'm just beginning my PhD, so I'm still uh, kind of trying to come to grips with all of these issues. Uh, And it's always very difficult to have sort of direct policy proposals because you sort of want things that are somewhat realistic. But then I also think it's good to have some radical ideas that, you know, just to kind of get them out there, um, even if they might be difficult or might raise a whole host of other issues. But so sort of generally, I think in the Portuguese case, there needs there need to be more homes that are allocated for sort of good old fashioned social housing. There are some programs that they've introduced recently that are kind of targeting uh, like middle class families, which is fine. But I think that there are a lot of people who are low income or who are homeless who just don't fall into that category, that they need some kind of recourse. And then I think as part of that, there could be sort of a mechanism for the government to buy up or appropriate vacant buildings and potentially use those for social housing. In Barcelona, I think there was recently a mechanism for the government to sort of repossess uh, homes that had been been repossessed by banks um, to sort of use for people who are on waiting lists for social housing. So I think a similar thing might be useful in the Portuguese case, especially in cases where the owner, sometimes the owner of the building, it's not clear who it is. Um, So there's just no reason that these buildings should be kind of sitting there empty. And then the other thing I think is encouraging, kind of supporting the private rented sector to encourage it to be more viable as a long-term option for people who don't have the means to get a mortgage and, and to also just kind of reduce the reliance on mortgages generally. And I think that would mean some kind of rent control. I mean, of course, you can see why people paying 60 euros a month for a flat is a bit ridiculous. Again, don't quote me on that amount. But at the same time, just fully liberalizing rents to the current market rate, which is, as we know, is massively inflated, like that just doesn't make sense. So there needs to be some kind of in-between. And then also more regulations on kind of Airbnb and like vacation rentals. I mean, you do have cases in Lisbon, I've seen it, where companies will just buy up a building and then they'll just like rent out each flat just continuously to tourists, which obviously takes a lot of flats off of the long-term rental market. Um, So I think it's important to have some kind of limit on that. And yeah, and all of that obviously needs to go hand in hand with the tenant regulations that ensure that long-term renting is viable. So that could mean like not allowing no-fault evictions, things like that. The suggestions that you have made would require some funds on the part of the state. So how do you recommend 
the governments go about raising that revenue to allow more social housing or to buy up these buildings? Um, I think that Portugal would really benefit from um, reevaluating uh, the taxation system. I mean, I know that doesn't sound super sexy, but, um, you know, basically Portugal is seen as having a very kind of lax tax setup. So that's often um, when you, you have often have real estate consultancies who sort of market Portugal as like this great place because they previously they had no inheritance or wealth tax. They've just introduced a slight kind of wealth tax on high value properties. There's no uh, stamp duty taxes. And then there's a lot of incentives. So for example, they have a golden visa program to encourage um, investment in the country. So you can get you can get a residence visa if you invest sort of 500,000 euros or more. And this is you can invest in kind of a number of different things in the country. But like the overwhelming majority of these visas have been through real estate investment. And there's sort of no regulation of that either. So I think implementing, you know, kind of the bare minimum of taxes on high value properties or, or high value real estate transactions or even taking a portion of like the golden visa investment and diverting that to an affordable housing fund or something could be really helpful because at the moment it just feels like there's so much capital coming into the country um, but it's not really being regulated and it's not really being diverted to kind of benefit the local population and one more thing I would say is there's some more radical ideas out there which I know might not seem viable for many reasons but I think are really interesting Um, so one of those is like a land value tax And the idea behind that is that, you know, if you own a piece of land, you can basically let it sit there and the value will just go up over time based on kind of the location, you know, assuming it's like in a relatively good location or whatever. And so the idea behind a land value tax is to actually tax that increase in land value that happens over time. Um, And so some people say that the land value tax, um, it's not a tax on development or property transactions. So it would actually encourage a more kind of productive use of land and discourage kind of vacant buildings. Because if you have like a vacant building or a vacant piece of land, it would still be taxed based on the land value and not based on um, what you're doing with it. Um, And then there's an argument that also that would kind of reduce speculation in and of itself that would help to um, stabilize house prices. But won't high taxation reduce investment, especially foreign investment? Yes, possibly. (laughs) (laughs) So on the one hand, I think often that kind of argument is maybe um, hyped up a bit because I think, for example, you know, Portugal has nice weather. It has a lot of natural beauty and like historical built up beauty. It's relatively stable politically, um, and the property is, as I said, quite affordable compared to other countries. So you could argue that that will likely keep it as an attractive country for investment, even if you raise taxes a bit. And then the other answer to that question is that uh, I think it's just important to disrupt the dominant narrative of, you know, that all foreign investment, all investment is inherently good for the economy, for example. Um, And I think if you have, if you think about a country of people who can actually afford their own housing, who find themselves with more time and energy to put to productive uses with more disposable income, I think that overall is a lot better for the economy, quote unquote, in addition to sort of fulfilling a fundamental human right of accessing housing. Okay. Final question. Um, You have been living in the UK for some time and you have been campaigning and conducting research 
have you seen similar patterns in the housing problems that we have here and stuff that you have found during your research on Portugal? Uh, yeah, I think um, foreign investment, financialization are also huge issues in the UK. You know, in London especially, obviously you see a lot of reports in the media of kind of foreign, investor, foreign investors buying up property as a way to sort of just park their wealth. Um, and often these properties end up being empty and not actually rented out. And then at the same time, you have many people who cannot access housing. Obviously, it's a really different context in the sense that UK, the UK does have a strong history of um, social housing. So it's there are many differences. Um, but, uh, but yeah, in general, I think there's similar issues. There's also similar issue around there's kind of constant evocation of the issue of supply and demand, as we said, and saying, there aren't enough houses, we need to build houses, that's just the answer is to build houses. And really, it matters what kind of houses you build, right? So if you're just building houses that very few people can afford, then that's not addressing the issue. So that, I think, is probably happening on a much bigger scale right now in the UK, um, but certainly relevant in Portugal as well. That's brilliant. Thank you so much, uh, Rafaela, for taking time out for our podcast and uh, sharing your research with us. We wish you all the best for your work and uh, we look forward to having you back again once you know, you've conducted some more research and then you can tell us more about it. And thank you for listening to Global Policy Next Generation podcast. If you would like to contribute to Next Generation or appear on our podcast, please send us an email on next.generation at global-policy.com. Thank you.